Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42? That is the text we're going to look at today. Psalm 42. As Christians, we are people of this book. This is the principal means through which Jesus Christ and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit have been pleased to reveal himself to us. And so we give special attention and special honor and special place to the Word of God on the Lord's Day. We don't come together to study it as if we could put it up here and examine it and figure it out and take it apart and deconstruct it. We come rather to be taught by it, to hear it preached, to sit under God's word. And so you and I have special obligations to fulfill as God's word is preached. I, as your preacher, have this obligation to preach the word and to speak as I do it, as though I am speaking the utterances of God, and to do it with all authority. And I am weak and have very little faith for that work. So would you please pray for me as I bring you God's word. Your responsibilities this morning as listeners, as hearers of the word, is this, as Paul commends the Thessalonian believers in this way, he says, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. And I want you to know that you are weak, and I've been praying for you that God would give you humility and wisdom and the ability to hear his word and to receive it, not as the words of me, but as the, for what it is, the word of God. This is what John Calvin says about preaching. Every time the gospel is preached, it is as if God himself came in person solemnly to summon us. And so we trust, we live by faith as Christians. I'm a man and you know some of my sins and you are hearers of the word and I know some of your sins. And we all do this work by faith, trusting that what God has says is true, is true. Let's give our attention now our ears, our hearts, to the Lord in his word. Psalm 42. For the choir director, a masquil of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, 
for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. O Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would feed us from it now. Give us insight and understanding into what you are speaking. Give us willingness to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Though this Psalm 42 is not directly attributed to David, nonetheless, I believe it corresponds very well to his style and thought and prayer life and the details of his life. Most commentators believe that it was written by David and during one of the two periods of exile that he experienced from the land of Israel, from the people of God, from the worship of the tabernacle and the new moon festivals. Either the time when he was exiled under the reign of Saul or either during the rebellion and uprising of his son Absalom And I tend to think it was under Absalom, even though Calvin disagrees with me. Because of the memory that's expressed in verse 4 of when David references, remembering the procession to the house of God that he participated and led. That with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. And if he had only mentioned dancing, we would have nailed it as definitely under the exile during Absalom's reign. Well, we see played out in this psalm a conflict between faith and sense. A conflict between faith and sense. Between the difficulties that surround David, the ones that he can see with his physical eyes, and the things he's able to comprehend in his inner man by faith. What David knows by experience and what he knows by faith just do not seem to agree today. This is frequently the case in the life of believers, isn't it? What does spanking my child for the umpteenth time have to do with being seated in the heavenlies? It's not immediately clear. But there is a connection. But the connection can only be seen through the eyes of faith. The things that we can perceive in our inner man. If we only look with our physical eyes at the difficulties and the circumstances surrounding us, there is no reason, it would seem. 
It is by the gift of the Spirit and the wisdom of the Spirit the in, in the inner man that we are strengthened to interpret the, the difficulties and the circumstances of our lives according to God's truth. The abundant life that Christ holds out for us in his word and that which he gives us in our day-to-day circumstances can be very difficult at times to harmonize, as anyone who's lived very long as a Christian can tell you. This is why the Christian life is called a life of faith. Perhaps you thought that in coming to believe in Jesus, life was going to be this one long and glorious being carried to the skies and flowery beds of ease, as the hymn says. And you could be excused somewhat for thinking this, because this is the bait and switch trick that modern day evangelism has been perfecting for some decades now. Except we've got it down so well these days that we don't bait and switch. We don't switch anymore, we just bait. We continue to bait. That is all we have to offer you is bait. Rich, healthy, good-looking American, I can see that your life is really pretty good, but just think of how much better it could be with Jesus. And that's as far as we get. Unfortunately, this is the message of what passes for a great deal of Christian literature, of Christian worship, and Christian preaching in our day. But listen to evangelism according to Jesus Christ. Here's what he said. Jesus was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily, his instrument of torture and death. He must take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. This is evangelism, according to Jesus. And it indicates that the abundant life that Jesus came to give to us, that he promised to us, is a life of great difficulty. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while non-Americans fight to win the prize? Non-moderns fight to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? No, resounds the implied answer in the hymn. I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. Listen to how Christ's apostles went about encouraging, encouraging the fledgling faith of the earliest Gentile converts. Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, and this is in Acts 14, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus and the apostles are not greeting card evangelists. They are truth tellers. 
They don't sell the Christian life short. They call men to discipleship, to effort, to sorrow for the sake of their souls. In a very real sense, you've never known pain. You've never known suffering. You've never known temptation or conflict or weariness or sleepless nights, hunger or thirst, as we see in this psalm, until you've known these things as a Christian. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Broad is the road, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many find it. But narrow the gate and narrow the way is the, that leads to life, and few there be that find it. In coming to Jesus, it's very difficult to be saved. And here's why. It's because you've committed yourself to pursuing the, the very thing that the devil hates most. Holiness. And as long as you are living according to the pattern of this world, as by nature, by birth, all of us were, calling evil good and good evil. Then you're no threat to Satan, no challenge to him. Rather, you were his servant, you were his helper. He was pleased with you. He gave you no trouble. And this is what Asaph observed in Psalm 73. He was tempted to envy the wicked as he looked that they had, they, they prospered. They had no pains in their death. They had no difficulties in life. Their eyes bulged with fatness. And I almost gave up. It is in vain that I've kept myself pure until he came into the house of God and there he perceived their end. Surely God had set them on, in slippery places. As opposed to Asaph, who through great difficulty and tribulation was entering the kingdom. So before you had come to Jesus, you were no threat to Satan, but then when you, through Christ and through faith in him, had set yourself to being saved from this perverse generation and to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and to be conformed more and more each day into the image of Jesus Christ, now suddenly you register on Satan's radar screen. And he, you become his enemy, whereas before you were God's enemy. And so as you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, you're transferred from one battle line to another battle line. And you don't es escape the obligation to fight. You might not have felt your obligation before, like you'll feel it as a Christian when you served Satan. You may have been oblivious to it, but you were fighting for him. There's no neutral territory in this world. But now that you're a Christian, Satan will let you know that you are his, have become his enemy. And if you do not fight in this new battle, 
and this new army that you have been blessed to join, then you will be damned if you do not fight for the Lord, you will be damned. Does that astonish you that I would say that? Remember that it was to Christian believers that the Apostle Peter issued this warning. 1 Peter 5, 8-9 Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is not a symbolic warning. This is not a morality play that the Apostle Peter is giving us. It's a very real and present danger. It's a threat. But God is faithful and promises that, but resist him, firm in your faith. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. So let me ask, is your life hard and difficult as a Christian? Good. Excellent. Are you often discouraged, beaten down, and weary? Fantastic. Do you doubt? Do you despair? Do you find it hard to get up in the morning? Are you now in the midst of some trial when the grace of God is all but completely obscured from your eyes? Well, you must be doing something right. You have suddenly started to ping on Satan's radar screen. And you're in good company. Because the most excellent Christian, King David, himself found his, his, he found himself pinging on the radar screen an awful lot. He was in a number of very tricky situations and afflictions. And had no recourse but God alone. And he's left us this priceless record of how he got through one of them. By prayer. So this psalm is a very great help to those who are striving for holiness. Because it shows the normalcy of the difficult and painful way of salvation. The violence of the Christian life bears out in the prayers of this godly man, the godliest of men, a man after God's own heart. And if David has valleys and dark nights of the soul, then so must the best of Christians. So let's see what we can learn from David's example. I want you to note, especially as we go through this passage, this tug of war that David's engaging in between his sense, what he sees with his eyes around him, what he's experiencing, and the faith in his inner man. Calvin says about Psalm 42 that David contended strongly against his sorrow, lest he should yield to temptation, but what we ought chiefly to observe is this, that he had experienced a strong and bitter contest before he obtained the victory over it. Psalm 42 begins with a statement of intense desire for communion with God. This is what our souls were made for. Communion with God, fellowship with him, 
eating around his table, knowing him, finding our joy and, and satisfaction in him. This is what your soul is for. This is what God made you for. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God made you for communion. And Psalm 42 begins with a statement of intense desire for that communion. David's soul is parched. He thirsts after God the way a deer longs for a brook. David is in a bad way. Have you ever seen a dehydrated animal? Let's just stop and ask, be honest, who has always thought this is just a, the prettiest of all images? And like an, ah, shucks, that's beautiful <laughs> kind of moment in the Psalms. The safest possible thing that David could pray. Like a beautiful doe coming to the gentle pond in the cool of the morning and the glow of the evening. Like Thomas Kincaid would paint it. Not a buck, a doe. Gently lapping at the water. Everything right in the world. Have you ever seen a dehydrated animal? Well, if, if you want to be really grossed out, you can find one or two on YouTube. I grew up on a farm and I've seen, and I've hunted deer, and I've seen both. And it is a pathetic and disgusting and sad thing to see. I've seen small calves dehydrated that have been birthed and not found for a long time, abandoned by their mothers, that are, have, their, their legs are stiff. They, they're laying on their side like this, just awkward and stiff, their eyes bulging moaning in extreme agony. Very disgusting. Very desperate situation. Notice that David chooses thirst and not hunger to express himself. There's no more basic need than water. Hunger is a basic need, but you can go quite a ways without it, as Jesus proved in the wilderness. But water... You cannot survive but a couple of days without it. And so David chooses the most desperate possible expression that he can find. And by the way, how did this deer get dehydrated? By being chased. By being run to death. By a pursuer. This is not pretty. David repeats himself in verse 2. He says, his soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And to this he adds a question. When will I be able to appear before God? Well, what do you mean, David? You're praying. Aren't you before God? Isn't that what prayer is? Where we come before God in prayer? Yes. Thank goodness, prayer is the one or maybe two, if we hide God's word in our heart, means of grace, where no one can take them from us. We can take them wherever we go, and even in the most desperate situations, we have them. 
God has cared for us and provided for us in that way. But David here is longing for something he has been kept from in his exile, which is this. Worship, public ordinances, public prayers, public rejoicing, public sacraments. For him, it was different than ours. He had sacrifices and he had priests who had garments, all which testified to the communion that God offers his saints. David missed these things. When, Lord, when will I get to appear before you? How low of you do we have of what is happening right now? Sometimes we get a glimpse of it when we go on vacation to the boonies and can't find a church or find a church that fails to meet our, our requirements, fails to pass muster. This is the sad state of the church, that there are many like that. But it's like going into a Babylonian captivity where you want to hang your harp on the willow. A very sad thing, and we miss one another. David is longing for public worship. He's been cut off from fellowship with God's people and from most of the means of grace, the ordinances of God's worship. And so he's distraught about being kept away from God's house. He's so distraught that he's not even able to eat. He says his tears have been his only food for some days. Have we shed tears when we've missed a Sunday? We have a very low view, and David, a very high view of God's public ordinances. David's adversaries know how to taunt him in the way that really gets to him and really hurts. They say, David, where is your God? And this gets to David because he's been wondering this very thing himself, he admits later on in the psalm. Why have you forsaken me? He asks the Lord. And in response, David thinks back to times when he was able to rejoice with God's people in God's house. And all he has now are the the memories of them, which are bittersweet. Memories of past joys. And they, they are helpful to us, and David seems to be on the upswing as he thinks of them. Because next he says, in the valiant attempt to fight against discouragement, he chides himself with these words in verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. God is faithful. He will not let me die in the wilderness. He desires for me to have fellowship and communion with him and his saints. He'll be faithful. Why are you in despair, O my soul? But this initial rebuke does not take. Immediately, David returns to his problems, which is that he is despairing. Again, he says in verse 6, my soul is in despair within me. So he tries one more time. This time he recalls to mind God's goodness to the nation of Israel in the past. 
things he's read about, heard about, perhaps seen himself, great works of God in the land, great victories won for God's people against the enemies. But though David remembers great deliverances of the past, and that's a very good thing for us to do when we're discouraged, it occurred to me this week that all of those things David had thought about are victories that God won for us. We are Abraham's descendants. So what's stopping you from taking delight, as we have done this morning already in Psalm 77 that we sang, Holy in Your Ways? We were taking delight in God drowning the Egyptians for us. That was our victory. Isn't that a great thought? Get a hold of the Old Testament and think about it. It's, it's yours. God's victory for you. But though David remembers these deliverances of the past, he still finds himself down in the dumps in deep trouble. He says he's caught between deep water below him and high water above him. Deep sounds to deep. He sent out his, his uh, soundings <laughs> and he just finds water everywhere. Uh, no land in sight, no air to breathe. It's ironic to me that he's thirsting and drowning in water. The afflictions of God, we are told in Hebrews, are not pleasant for the moment, but sorrowful. But afterwards, they produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is what God is doing in David. He's not made him joyful, he's made him sorrowful, but so that he can produce in him the peaceful fruit of righteousness. David confesses God's sovereignty by saying, your waves and your breakers have come over me. I think it's wonderful to see that he is not blaming others, nor is he blaming God, but he is attributing this in, correctly to God's afflicting him. But if David is blaming anyone, it is himself. He says twice, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed? <laughs> it's the most accusatory thing in the psalm. He saves his best judgments for himself. His best critiques. What's wrong with you, soul, that you haven't the faith for this? Hope in God. So he's drowning. He knows that the waves are from the Lord. Nevertheless, and here faith it's kicking in again. He's on the upswing. David knows that God will command his loving kindness to David in the daytime and will give him a song to sing in the night. David will pray, he says. What will he say? He will say to God his rock, Why have you forgotten me? David's enemies have been wounding him, you remember, with their taunts of, Where is your God, David? And David is thinking to himself, 
yeah. <laughs> Where is my God? <laughs> I have no very little, if any, sense of him at this time. But like Jesus Christ, who hung on the cross and was rejected by men, and had, was receiving, in the midst of receiving, the fullness of God's wrath for all of our sin, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't say, you meanie up there. He owned him as his father. Why have you forsaken me? He's praying to God as he says these words. This is not bitterness, but rather an appropriate prayer in the midst of trial. So David lastly chides himself one more time, and with the same words as last time, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And now this chiding, this last one, has worked. David has stilled and quieted his soul. He's now like a weaned child that rests against his mother. The prayer is ended, and this battle is won. So what can we learn from this prayer? What's, what's in it for us? Well, number one, you heard me joke about the image of the deer. This is, I'm afraid, a bad habit that we have with Scripture as modern Americans. We have sentimentalized God's word. Sentiment is like an emotional idealism. We've painted an airbrush picture. We think that God is duty-bound to make us at all times to feel comfortable and happy. And so when there are things that make us uncomfortable and unhappy in God's word, we are very good at ignoring them, but maybe especially at putting a lot of makeup on them so that they're unrecognizable. We have these ways of making Scripture sound like greeting cards when the opposite is the truth. So we need to restore Scripture and spirituality to its masculine dignity. We've, we, are, we major in the subjective today, in the emotive. The church used to be known as a, a community of shared doctrine and faith. And about all you can say for the church in America anymore is that the only thing we have in common and the only glue that holds us together, that unites us, is shared feelings, emotions that we seek together. We come together to seek this same experience of feeling. And we need to restore to Scripture its masculine dignity, and by that I mean its objectivity, its risk, its danger, its many sharp distinctions, its arguments, its judgments, its truths. And if we don't, brothers and sisters, we easily pray, we fall prey to Satan when our only defense against him is a kind of cloud of feeling that we scatter before ourselves or work up. 
Pastor Baker is fond of telling us, I, I've never heard it quite put this way, but this is the way it was reported to me this last week. Don't let yourself tell you the truth. Tell the truth to yourself. Is that right, Stephen? That's how somebody, I thought it was pretty good. Close enough. We need to reclaim the truth of Scripture. And we need to preach it to ourselves, as we see David doing here in this psalm. The principal offensive weapon that God has given us is the sword of the Spirit. And if we dull that sword with our sentiments every opportunity, we're useless in fighting against our enemy. How else would Jesus have defeated Satan during his 40 days in the wilderness and the three temptations if he had not wielded the sharp sword of the Spirit? But as we give back to the Bible and to spirituality this masculine dignity, this sharp edge, we must be careful not to overreact against emotionalism into rationalism. We are not disembodied brains. We are men. We are men. Jesus was a man. Our command is not to worship the Lord with all our feeling or to love the Lord our God with all our heart. It's not to love the Lord our God with all our mind. It's not to love the Lord our God with all our soul. But it is to love the Lord our God with all of these things, which is what Jesus did. The true man. And we are to grow up into all aspects unto him who is our head. And so we have to work hard to reclaim all of these things. The mind, the heart, and the soul. Listen to what the Puritan preacher Richard Sibbs. Is that his first name, Richard? I think that's his first name. This is what he said in a sermon called A Breathing After God. He said that our souls, our union and communion with God in his ordinances, to grow in nearer communion with God by his spirit, to have more knowledge and affection, to have more knowledge and feeling, more love and joy and delight in the best things daily. Our souls are for these things that will make us gracious here, and glorious forever after in heaven. If you'd like a good Lord's Day afternoon read, find Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Heaven, a World of Love. It'll give you an appetite for the glory of heaven and the graciousness that we need here. God is not glorified by disembodied brains. He wants our brains attached to our hearts, attached to our bodies, attached to our souls, serving him fully. Nevertheless, our modern idolatry of feelings has corrupted our reading of Scripture. We've sentimentalized it where we needed to, in order to feel good, where we needed to do that in order to feel good about it. And we need to clean off the makeup so that we can see the old girl again for what she is, warts and all. It's the only defense we have against the evil one. When we pull back the layers of sentiment in Scripture, what do we discover? We discover again that God's ways are not our ways. 
And his thoughts are not our thoughts. What did, who did David credit his difficulties to? God. Your waves, your breakers have washed over me. What modern evangelical would have the sense to say that? And we would think it. We would think it in our bitterness. But we would never say it. It would never be preached. God's ways are not our ways. What is God up to? Remember what he said to Peter in Luke, or yeah, to Peter in Luke 22, when he had just got done saying, everyone's going to run away from me this night. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and you, when once Satan has sifted you like wheat, and you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Why on earth would God, who loves us, give Satan permission to sift us like wheat? He did the same thing with Job. In one sense, it's very comforting to know that Satan has to come and seek God's permission, that God is in control of all things. This should be a comfort to us. But in another sense, what is God doing? Why do bad things happen to his people? <laughs> well, it is through great tribulation and only through great tribulation that we will enter the kingdom. And we've forgotten that it is because he is treating us like sons. You've forgotten, he says in Hebrews 12, the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. It is because of discipline that you endure. You want to endure? It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all Christians have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. When God disciplines us as sons... When he brings afflictions and trials or blessings. Think of how many things the world, that God calls a blessing, that the world calls an affliction and a trial in your life. And you're tempted to say the same thing about them. Like the little girl in Archie's lap that he's pointing to. Or Josiah. At that moment, our enemies pile on. Haven't you experienced this, Heather, at the grocery store? Because <laughs> all, these, all these moms have the, the war stories of going to Walmart and the things people say. Often it's other Christians who heap it on at those moments. I feel so sorry for her with all those children I don't know why. She's entering the kingdom of heaven.
when you're tempted by God's enemies to give up and to be discouraged, do what David did. Preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. Soul, what is wrong with you? Why are you in despair? Hope in God. I will again praise him. These are momentary light afflictions. I'm going to end by just reading to you a hymn that we've discovered in the last couple of years that we've mostly sung as, Curtis actually has mostly sung it to us in a couple of times in the offertory. It's a hymn by John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace and also Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken that we have come to love. And it's called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. Have you ever asked the Lord that you might grow? If you're a Christian, I sure hope you have. It's As the hymn says, it is a prayer that God himself has taught us to pray. But listen to these words. I think it perfectly sums up for us what David has been getting at, what I've been trying to preach to you this morning. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds. Which I have no idea what that means. Anybody know? Josh, you got to know what that means. What? Well, I, I'm, I'm illiterate about the Bible, I'm afraid. What is, tell me what it means. And it withered? It blasted? Okay. <laughs> it got blasted. Blasted my gourds, my, my attempts at comfort in this world, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied, "'I answer prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ "'from self and pride to set thee free "'and break thy schemes of earthly joy "'that thou mayst find thy all in me.'" Do not regard lightly, my son, the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those 
Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And amen. Father, we ask for your help to have faith, to pour out our souls before you when we experience difficulties and pains and sorrows, to come to you in prayer. And Father, we pray that we would also learn to preach better to ourselves and to remind us to hope in you. And Lord, help us never to regard lightly your discipline or to faint when we are reproved by you. And even though it is unpleasant in the moment, help us to have faith that it will, in your providence, in your kindness and mercy to us, produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And Lord, would you produce it in all of us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.